Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church family. It's such a pleasure for my wife and I to be back with you again on this uh, beautiful Sunday. We had a lovely drive down. We actually had a little bit of sunshine on the way until we hit about the airport area and then we could watch the clouds roll in and we had a little bit of fall rain. More really of a very light sort of uh, mist but beautiful to see the colors of the trees isn't it? Beautiful in this changing season, fruitfulness, celebrating Thanksgiving. I hope you indulged a little too much, uh, given all that we have access to over that Thanksgiving weekend and enjoyed that day of uh, extra break on the Monday, the Thanksgiving Monday, as it's often referred to. And now we're back into sort of the rhythm of things and returning to the passage of Scripture that was read for us from uh, John chapter 20, and, and was initially titled, uh, the passage I was given, Evidence of the Resurrection. But I, I really want to title it with a question mark. Because we see at the end of these verses 10 that they, all, they, they go home. Not really sure what it is they've seen. So I've titled this, Is There a Resurrection? Because if we were to interview the three that are part of this, um, Mary and then John and Peter, we would have varying answers. They wouldn't be sure. I think John of the three is sure. We'll come to that. But the others are not really certain. As we begin, I want you to realize again that the focus of Christianity is a person. It's not so much about a uh, series of doctrines that we need to know and pursue. It's about a person that we need to know. It is about a person who has Um, fulfilled in every way what was asked of him, but in addition, he has shared with us the nature and the person of God himself, because Jesus is one with God. Our focus is on a single human being, unique and exceptional. John describes him as the only begotten of the Father, this one-of-a-kind person who is both God and man in one being. Often when people think of a religion's founder, they remember his words. Words are important, and when John opens his account, he refers to Jesus in that way, that he is the word of God. In other words, he is the expression of God. He is the one who makes God known, understood, available, uh, with us. All of those things are part of who Jesus is as the second person of the Trinity. And as John is continuing to tell us the story of who Jesus is, we recognize that our faith is based on more than the life and the words of Jesus. Let me say that again. Our faith is based on more than the life and words of Jesus. Fundamentally, it is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because he died, and we understand that there was meaning behind that. We're not sure in these few verses of John 21 to 10, what that meaning is. There's confusion and misunderstanding and some apprehension and 
and the three have different ideas about what has happened to Jesus. But if the life in the words of Jesus were all that was needed, then chapters 20 and 21 wouldn't exist. But we need to understand fundamentally that it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that flows out of his life, his words and his deeds, that make the whole of the gospel come together and become the foundation of our faith and of our hope. Without chapter 20, we would be following a religion like most other religions in the world with a founder that is dead. Someone who started something and then, in human process, wasn't able to live beyond his natural life. However, what sets our faith in Jesus apart from other religions is this. Jesus died, and death could not hold him. Jesus died with intention and purpose and plan and foreknowledge of God. It was always what God had in store for his son. But we worship the God of the empty tomb. He died, but he is not there. He died, and we would imagine that we would know a place, but to be honest with you, we're uncertain about the actual tomb Jesus was laid in after his death on the cross in chapter 19. Jesus suffered, and it was a gruesome, it was gruesome, it was excessive, and it was ignoble, full of shame, horror, embarrassment. And it is also true that Jesus prophesied his death to be this very horrific but necessary death. Jesus does not remain on the cross bleeding and giving up his life as a ransom for many. No, friends, it is not Jesus on the cross that we worship, and I'm saying that purposefully. It is not Jesus on the cross that we worship as if that's all that we should know and focus on. Rather, it is that we worship the God who died and the God who now will always be living, and so we live in him. We worship the God of the empty tomb. As we look at the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, our immediate focus in these 10 verses will be on the three individuals, his followers, who come to the tomb first. He's been crucified. He's been laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Many would refer to this as a borrowed tomb in reference again to the poverty of Jesus that he didn't possess this himself. He was laid in the tomb of one of his friends and followers. And according to the gospel, uh, we see that when they arrive, what surprises us in the first place is that it is a woman who comes first. Now, why is that important? Because if she, in this day, was to give evidence, her evidence wouldn't be accepted. She's not a man. So her word has less value in the courts of that day. We just think that's horrific in a day of equality and rights. But in this day, a woman's testimony would not be regarded with the same strength as a man's. Grateful, aren't we, that these days have changed. But one of the things that sets this up and sets it apart is that a woman is the first witness to the tomb being empty. And she's not really sure what it means. The Sabbath is over, it's Sunday, the first day of the week, and it's likely that Mary arrives in her thinking, as we would read from the other Gospels if we did a comparison, is that she's going to meet some of her friends, other female friends, they're going to come, and you understand it was just a few hours before 
the Sabbath was to start that the leaders went to Pilate and said, we need his body off the cross. It would be terrible to have these dead people hanging there. So they wanted them removed so they could have the worship of God on the Sabbath and keep the Passover and not have this grim reminder of Rome or of criminals or of death and all of this going on in Jerusalem. So that was granted. But the burial then happened quickly. Now, we do read that there were 75 pounds of spices that Jesus would have been wrapped on, so they didn't embalm him. That's another process altogether. But what they did, because he would be in a grave, is to reduce the stench of a decaying body. It would be wrapped in spices. And the detail is that there was the cloths that were there, and then there was a face cloth that was separate. That's why we know the Shroud of Turnin couldn't possibly be Jesus' shroud. He didn't have a head covering that was one piece. He had a separate cloth. The text is clear. And that comes in for another point a little bit later that we're going to sort of focus on about these cloths that he was wrapped in. And it's likely that they were pieces of cloth that were wound and the spices placed inside of them because it would just reduce the inevitable smell that would come from a decaying corpse. But it was done hastily, and so the, the women would come to do a little bit more, to make that last thing for Jesus that they could do as a task. So this is the way the words read. It's already been read for us, but I'm just going to bring us back to that passage of Scripture and read it again in the same translation that Bruno read for us. Now, on the first day of the week, so we know that Friday has passed, Saturday has passed, and now it's the morning of Sunday, while it was still dark, sorry, I missed a phrase, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where we have laid him. Ah, they don't know. Now, notice she moves from the personal to the plural. Is it possible at the time that she was running, she saw the other women and spread the news? We, we're really not sure, but we know that there was a group that came to the tomb uh, in one of the other accounts, so it's likely. But it's early, it's still dark, meaning the day was turning from gray and that difficult-to-see stage. If you've been up at dawn and you know what I'm talking about, it's the time when you're staggering from your bed to the bathroom, you're more likely to stub your toe because you can think you see the things, but they might not be where you think you see them. You know what I'm saying? It's a bit difficult to discern exactly what's there. The tomb is open. This is surprising, unexpected, a shock. Because you do remember in another one of the passages that it was sealed by the Romans. And the guards were to be there, and there were no guards in this account. And there is stone that is open. It's a shock. Mary was at the tomb these moments by herself. Now, she could see that the stone was removed, but she couldn't see anything else and she didn't go into the tomb. Why not? Well, she maybe didn't have a lamp, and it was dark, and who wants to go into a tomb where there's been a body and it's dark? You know, you just get that creepy feeling, don't you? What's going on? Well, I'm not going in there. You could just imagine two kids standing there. Well, you do it, right? Not likely at this moment. It's mystifying, and it's 
horrifying and it's confusing. Mary was alone without light at the tomb, without friends and without hope. Have you been in a moment like that? Alone? Wanting people to be with you, no one's with you. Wanting there to be some hope in this moment where you're bereft, you're empty, you're confused, you're shattered. That's a moment for Mary right now. Mary quickly concluded, but falsely, that the body of Jesus had been moved, and she runs. Some would say hot-foots it to where Peter was staying, and with him a younger disciple. His name is John. He calls himself in the gospel by this phrase, the disciple Jesus loved. As if he didn't love, no, that's not true. He's not saying how much better he is. He's saying, I had this special relationship with Jesus. And if we did the little research, we would discover that John had the position of being at the table with Jesus, whether it was assigned or he took it or kept going to that seat before the others could take it, that when Jesus would just lean back on the table as he ate, John would be right there seeing him face to face. And he liked that. He was the little young one, maybe not little, but the young one in the group. And he had this sort of relationship of being the baby. One day our daughter Ruth said to our mom, Mom, because our daughter is the baby, she's the youngest in the family. And she said to her, Mom, you were the baby in the family, weren't you? And I said, yes, I was. She said, it's nice being the baby in the family, Mom. Oh, Donna said to Ruth, why is it great to be the baby in the family? Oh, she said, people just do things for babies. Do you think John, as the youngest, had a relationship in which he had some attention that the others didn't get simply by definition of being the young one? Maybe. Maybe that's what the disciple whom Jesus loves has this connotation of older brother, younger brother, leader, follower, but this unique and comfortable and deep relationship. So it says they've taken him... Uh, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Having seen the brutality of the crucifixion of her Lord, seeing the tomb is empty, she, she concludes rationally, logically, that someone has taken the body. We shouldn't be too hard on Mary in this moment. It's reasonable to assume that Mary may not have been with all of the disciples to hear Jesus make the prophecies about how he had to die, suffer first, and then die, and then rise, because she was not a man, correct? And she wouldn't have followed and gone where the disciples and the men would have been. She certainly would have been in homes, and she was one of several women who provided for Jesus and for the disciples out of her own resources, but she may not have heard all the conversation. She certainly would have been privy, been aware of all the stories that would have been told about Lazarus, who had risen from the dead, or the widow of Nain, whose daughter had been raised, or uh, Jairus, and on it goes. There were many stories of Jesus doing these incredible miracles, but friends, just pause. They had seen him die horrifically. 
It was in their mind. Can you imagine what this Passover was for these people? Every time their head hit the pillow, they saw the horror again. Traumatized. Overwhelmed. Defeated. Shocked. Confused. All of these things in their minds. This is not what they believed would happen. She would have heard about Lazarus. Likely, yes. And we must not forget she was miraculously freed herself of seven demons. But resurrection? Is it possible? In this moment, was she anticipating it? I'm suggesting not. The men, Peter and John, hear the words, the tomb is empty, we don't know where they put him. And that could be a reference that, as I've said, the women had, other women had met her and the news is going. And they run together out of where they're staying to the tomb. And John has the advantage because we read both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, why do you suppose John didn't go in? I can see him at the edge, can't you, peering in? Is it still maybe a little bit dark? Possibly. So maybe it's hard to see. He didn't have a lamp? Possibly. He sees the grave clothes. He sees the wrappings. And maybe those, the, the spices, the 75 pounds of them lying there in disarray, I imagine a heap, and John takes in what he sees, but he stalls right at the entrance. I wonder if youth is not his advantage here. He could run faster than Peter, but he hadn't experienced this kind of thing before. He was maybe new at graves and tombs. He's the youngest, after all. Uh, maybe he has had some experience with death, but maybe not going into the tomb, how many tombs has he entered? We don't know. Has he experienced loss of this kind firsthand? We don't understand. Is, is he shy? Is there something of culture that pauses him at this moment? And he doesn't want to invade this space. We have no idea. All we know is he stalls at the door. And as he's watching, Peter comes and he pushes past him. Now, we would expect that, wouldn't we? Because Peter's impulsive. I'll get to the bottom of things. He's the one who speaks quickly. He's decisive. He's a man of action. And you can see him using the first glimpses of light and lighting his eyes now focused to what he sees. And it's pointed out, first the wrappings are there from Jesus' body. And then a distance away, separated, is the face cloth neatly folded. Now we'll come back to that in a moment. But he takes all of that in. He sees it for himself. Hmm. The tomb and the cloth. As Peter is taking it all in, the focus changes. There's no comment on what Peter makes out from what he sees because as this is all happening, John, who has been at the door, moves in and takes it all in himself. The neatly folded face cloth could be what the younger generation is calling from someone, oh, that's your tell. Have you heard that phrase before? It comes from a classic game of poker where people are playing around and making bets, etc., and the stakes are growing. 
But when someone is dealt a card by the dealer and he receives it and it's a good card, he does something that lets the players around the table and he's unconscious of it. He lets them know he's just got a great card. Maybe it's an eyebrow that goes up. Maybe he strokes his chin. Maybe he changes uh, one knee crosses the other. Maybe he makes a slight sound. Maybe one side of his lip curls up. You know what I'm saying? It's a tell that people at the table would know what it means. And now it's come into regular culture broadly that when you're talking to someone and you see them do something, you know what they're thinking. Because you know them so well, it's a giveaway. They've done it again. You know exactly what is happening in their mind without them uttering a phrase. It's just this slight little motion. So what's the tell here? I want to suggest to you it's the folded face cloth. John saw it and knew that Jesus himself had done it. How? Well, he'd traveled with him. He'd eaten with him. He was the one closest to Jesus. He could imagine, could you see that when Jesus has anything that belongs to him in his space, he's neat about this. He folds things and puts them down. And John went. He did it himself. And it says in the text, if you read it, down in verse, um, at, in verse 8, or pardon me, yes, in verse 8, well, let's, let's read the whole thing. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. Now, what did he see? I'm telling you what he saw. He saw the cloths and the folded face cloth that Peter had seen, but he interpreted it differently. Now, was it that Peter was less observant? Possibly. He was so busy thinking of the next thing he wanted to say, he wasn't paying attention to the first thing he was seeing. You understand, he, he's, he's, he's described as this kind of man of action. Or it's also possible that Peter is continually visiting his failure. He denied Jesus three times. At the time, Jesus, what would we say, most needed a defender, someone who'd stand beside him. And Peter had been the one who had boasted to God and said, if everyone else denies you, I never will. Three times he denied Jesus. And then when the rooster crowed, he looked at Jesus on the cross, and Jesus looked at him, and he went out and wept bitterly. He didn't have it either. That's devastating, isn't it? When you promise and fail, how do you come back from that? There's no do-over with this. Is it likely that Peter was revisiting this each night through these events? Absolutely. Unquestionably. Do you think he was beating himself up? Do you think he was horrified at his failure? Because when the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and saw, it says, he believed. And John doesn't describe what went on in his mind. He doesn't give us all the inside. Well, he's not supposed to. He's telling the story of Jesus, not his story. He's not talking about what first influenced him. He simply adds the notation, I saw and I believed. He's writing the account. 
What further confirms the idea that this was John's observation about Jesus and not a moment in which he understood the prophecies or what Jesus had been saying all along is the very next verse. If you read verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You see, John's not linking the words of Jesus. John is linking the behavior of the person that he knew. His focus was on Jesus. Not his words. I, I think it underscores that John saw and believed, and it wasn't uh, out of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies or his actions or his promises. And then we read something I didn't expect. I must say, as I was studying this, verse 10 was one of those, what? That's what I wanted to say out louder. Are you kidding? Then the disciples went back to their homes. Right? They don't know what to do. They don't know what to make of it. Do you see the confusion? Do you see the perplexing state that they're in? It's, well, his body's gone. Now, John goes believing it's Jesus who's alive, But he's the youngest, probably keeping that little piece of information to himself at the moment and then writing it in the Gospels years later. And Mary is back at the tomb and she's just outside crying. She's just bereft. But consider this for a moment. And here's the thing I want you to see. The tomb is empty. So what? So what does it mean to the disciples? And what does it mean to you and I? The tomb is empty. Well, consider for a moment they're deeply traumatized, as I've been saying. They'd known Jesus for all of these three years. They'd followed him, in Mary's case, contributing from her own resources to his care and the feeding of him and the disciples. Certainly she had been healed from demons. Certainly she had heard about the miracles. Certainly she had seen and witnessed, as it were, a nightmare, the death of her Savior, Jesus. He was her Lord, and she had watched him die. She had watched him be buried. She was here to anoint his body, to sort of tidy things up a little bit with all of the speed that had been made with his internment. And she's struggling to make sense of it all. Her loss would feel overwhelming. That someone would then steal his body was bizarre and even crazy to be thinking about. She came to the tomb to do a task, and now he's missing. Some of us, when we're coming to faith or journeying in faith with Jesus, hit moments of confusion. Where are are you, Lord? I don't understand why this is happening to me. I don't understand what the meaning of this experience is. I, I don't understand when you said you would always be present why I feel you're absent. You understand where I'm going with this from Mary now to you and I. Because the experience of following Jesus will, on occasion for all of us, be filled with moments of very deep questions. And we will struggle to find a rational answer that satisfies us in the moments of our disappointment. That might be true for you this morning. But here's what I want to tell you. God is not surprised you're in that space. No, I'm not telling you he's altogether happy with you being in that space. 
And I'm not saying for a moment that he's absent from you, but he's not surprised given our weakness, our condition, our lack of experience, and the wideness of our understanding. It isn't perhaps that God hasn't been clear. It is that we have not listened or heard or understood what we need to now know. If you're in Mary's company, don't be too hard on yourself. God isn't over. He isn't finished with you yet. The story hasn't been finished in its writing. And he won't abandon you. Secondly, Peter was equally devastated, plus he'd failed to stand up for Jesus. Three times he denied him as Lord, just as Jesus had prophesied. I can just imagine the weight of his guilt and anguish. And here's what Peter is doing. He's watching. He's seeing. But I wonder in his mind, it goes, huh, doesn't change my failure. I'm the denier. That's going to go down in history. That's who I am benched. Not only disappointed in the outworking that Jesus was crucified, but horrifically disappointed, humiliated, ashamed of his own failure in these moments. Truly, Jesus had died for him, but I understand it was never to play a superior role over Peter. It was to continue the salvation story and promise, and to bring Peter home. Now, we're going to see how Jesus restores Peter in the future chapter. But for this moment, I want you to see that Peter saw the tomb and he didn't see its meaning. His loss, his grief, his despair, his embarrassment, his guilt was too deep to see anything other than a bizarre act of vandalism. Someone stolen. How awful. No matter what, he remains a failure. And then there's John, the youngest disciple. He knew deeply and believed fully that Jesus was alive, but he didn't know what it meant. He didn't understand how it worked. He's like a child who's being told on a flannel graph that Jesus died and he died for you and he was buried and he rose again. And the child can repeat all of the details and he doesn't know what it means for him. He hasn't understood that when Jesus died, he died as we're going to celebrate in communion in our place. And he took our punishment from God the Father on himself that our sin deserved. And in its place through his death, he gives us from the will and testament written in his blood, inheritance, life, promise, future, hope, cleansing, adoption, love. John knew he was alive, but he didn't know what it meant. Not yet, he will. What am I telling you? That these three individuals who were first to the tomb, we can relate to them in their lack of knowledge, their confusion, their disappointment, their frustration, their fear, their early thoughts about the resurrection because they don't know what it is.
Does God still love them? He's not done with them. Does God love you when you're confused and disappointed and frustrated and perplexed and don't get what other people seem to understand? One of his great characteristics, our God and Father, is that he's patient. Very patient. He's more patient with us than we are with each other, truth told. We imagine him saying, oh, for heaven's sakes, I told you this yesterday. You know, we hear him sometimes as an angry parent. Maybe we had an angry parent. And God takes on that voice. But we will read that the Master, Savior, our Lord Jesus, will, teach, will treat each of these disciples with remarkable kindness and grace that flows from his death and resurrection. Do they deserve it? Well, none of us deserve it. All of us need it. They're no exception, and they're going to receive it. The youngest disciple knows deeply, believes fully. And friends, the heart of the gospel right in front of us, like these three individuals, can match our own life. Our own emotions, our failures, our deafness to truth, our lack of capacity to be faithful and stand in the way. We stand in the way of our own understanding at times. And yet God is not done with us. Which of these three disciples this morning do you most deeply identify with? Is it Mary? Or Peter? Or John? Are you like Peter, more in touch with your weakness and your failure? Are you like Mary, missing the deep and necessary understanding that Jesus must serve you? Like John, you see that it means something, but you don't know the depths of its meaning. Watching Jesus, knowing that something is underway, but not sure what. Today, why don't you take your weakness, your failure, your lack of understanding, your confusion, your perplexity, and just tell God that. You who are bigger than I am. You who are gentle and kind and good. You who did not spare your son, but freely gave him up for us all. Please help me. God loves that. He's tender and kind and good and not willing that any would perish, but all would come to redemption. Trust him again. Take the step. Be willing to simply suspend what you don't know in the hope that he will make it clear. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the story of these three people who we will one day meet. We don't ridicule them, and we're not talking about them to embarrass them. We're talking about them because we can slip into their experience and see it from their eyes and understand that you, the God of grace, will journey with us in all of life. And we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.